Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast discussing the deeper mysteries of life, faith and meaning. My name is Dom Fay and I have our two regulars here with me today, Peter Catt and Sue Wilton. Good to have you guys along. Hey Dom. Thanks Dom, great to be here. And uh, we have a very special guest joining us today, Reverend Dr. Sarah Bachelard, an Anglican priest and theologian and the founder of Benedictus Contemplative Church in Canberra. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. Thanks, Dom. Great to be here. And uh, today we will be discussing prayer, which is something that is um, central to just about every faith tradition and form of spirituality, but something that is uh, often not really unpacked or explored or taught very well um, and something that I think people miss out on a lot as a result. So today we are going to unpack why we pray, how we pray, um, and I guess the overall function of it as a as a starting point. I might throw this one to you, Sarah. Sure. I, I want to start really broad and walk, uh, work our way in a bit. Why do we pray? What is the purpose of prayer? Uh, I think my my sense of that is that we we pray to be present, to be available to that reality that some of us call God. And so prayer is about connection and and being open to that connection. Would that be your answer, Peter? Do you have a different different take on it? No, I think that's basically it. Um, it's a it's it's really being open to a relationship. Um, and I think um, at its heart, that's um, that is prayer. It's to be in touch with, if you like, the ultimate reality. And in touch with uh, other people and with oneself. It's mm. sort of a, a triple movement, really. And um, if it's seen as relational, then I think we can deal with a lot of the uh, sort of uh, folk folk theology that gets attached to prayer. Mm. Mm. I think um, there's a number of stumbling blocks for people when it comes to prayer. Maybe they don't know, uh, is it a dialogue? Who are they talking with? How do they address this? person or identity they're talking with what do Mm. they say do they request something there's there's so many uh, i guess uh, gray areas surrounding prayer um and maybe to to set that up sue what was your introduction to prayer what was the prayer i guess that you remember whether it was as a a young person in the church what was what are your earliest memories of being taught prayer yeah i wonder i don't think i really was taught prayer i think prayer i always conceived of as a lot of asking for things and, uh, you know, very much like the Santa Claus list, it, it stayed that way for quite a long time, really, expecting um, God as the great provider of things when or when things are difficult, you know. And so then I sort of moved to the, the very cliched, um, I, I don't pray so I can change things, so I pray so that God can change me. And that is true on many levels, but it is far too cliched, I think, to deal with the actual um, complex nature of what a relationship is, because it is relationship. And so I, I think I, I wouldn't just sit there either anymore. I think we, it, it's certainly the petitionary Santa Claus list has gone way out for me now. Um, in, and, I, and I love the definitions that Sarah and Peter have given about being open and in relationship and present. You know, but there, there is certainly still the place for, you know, there, there's at least a few childhood prayers that, that I was taught and, and uh, a few rote prayers that probably have stood me in better stead than my Santa Claus list did. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, you know, with the, with the rise of people describing themselves as spiritual but not religious, something that's key that they can even see in those expressions is meditation, uh, mm. perhaps. Uh, you know, th- this idea that you have to be still to connect with the deeper truths of life, the deeper meaning of, the, I guess, the current that's flowing through all of this. 
Um, yet that is quite different, I guess, and that's the, the contemplative prayer, which we will get to mm. um, throughout the discussion. But that is very different to what you would see modelled in a church on a Sunday, almost anywhere, maybe in some of the newer churches. It might be a very um, request-based thing. In some of the you know more traditional churches, maybe it's a, a prayer everyone reads together that was written long ago. Um, Peter, what 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 does your personal prayer life look like? What what elements make it up? What different uh, approaches to prayer do you have personally? Um, my personal prayer life consists of two aspects. One one is being part of the prayer of the church, so that's saying the daily office, and that's a very uh, uh, habitual sort of thing, um, which. I have found um, has actually started to pray me rather than I pray it. So I have this bizarre experience these days. If I'm not around for morning prayer, for instance, the morning prayer of the day starts to tick off in its in my head, and I look at my watch and I think, my goodness, it's exactly 8:30. And, and so there's this sort of attachment to the day that 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 part of my prayer life and acts and then there's the prayer i do by myself and that is really more it's really a form of meditation i've given up um really ask in that time asking for anything or expecting anything other than wanting to dwell in the presence um and then if there are there are times that during the day when I send up what you'd call arrow prayers, like "Oh God, help me" or uh, <laughs> "Help me attend" or something like that, or or hear of a tragedy, uh, like someone being hit by a car and being in hospital, and and then being sort of mindful for them and their family, and and having a sense of the connectedness. So I think it's those. It's a it's a, it's a sort of amalgam of really quite formal prayer. I mean, morning and evening prayer in our tradition is really formalized, but it has a really deep habituating practice for me. So it stops me becoming self-indulgent, um, which I think uh, other forms of solitary prayer can have that effect. Um, and it's also a challenging form of prayer. You know, we read we read stuff morning and evening prayer that I would rather not read, that makes me angry, makes me question... Um, the nature of God, so there's a dialogue that it sets up, um, and so it's a real complex of things. I think um, the the greater mystery of God is something that obviously, and we've discussed this in many episodes, it's so hard to to understand. You know, even have any any sort of concept of what we talk about when we use the word God, and so when as a child you are taught to pray to God. That can be quite a challenging thing. I know how to talk to my dad. I, I don't know who am I talking to. What modality do I use? Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't taught as a child to pray. I grew up in an atheistical household, mm. and um, prayer was something I fell into when I joined the Christian church, uh, only to find there was a whole heap of stuff that I thought was close to superstition being practiced. Um, and it was one of the things that actually kept me out of the church for a long time was the the super what I saw as superstition and what I saw as self-indulgence, that the idea that that prayer somehow made people into the master of the universe, that you could tell God that you needed a parking space and God mm. thought so much about you that he would d- direct some poor lady who was in the middle of her shopping in the supermarket, rush out, move the car so you could park. I mean, people, and, and that level of, I, thought, mm. I, I couldn't believe that, 
that was seen as being anything helpful or real. And so mm. I, I actually spent a long time wrestling with the idea of prayer because of some of the practice of prayer. Because I hadn't been taught that as a child. I hadn't been habituated into it other than the, the Lord's Prayer and um, the 23rd Psalm, which I'd picked up at school. And I didn't understand because uh, of the way we sang, you know, the Lord's my shepherd. Um, all, this, all the relationships of the words were absolutely all over the shop. And so I had this really funny idea of what prayer was mm. and what Christians did. So I didn't have that habituating as a young person. Mm. I remember having a... Um, my, my father was a pastor growing up, which I've mentioned before, and I, I struggled, I think, when I was about 10 or 11, when uh, the church was telling me to pray for, for things. And I said, but why, why could I change God's mind? Mm. Um, mm. That doesn't seem... That doesn't, if I can change God's mind, that doesn't say good things about God because I'm an 11-year-old child who doesn't know a lot. Yeah. This isn't entirely reassuring. Is <laughs> yes. <that>? Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did, did you struggle yeah. with that concept of prayer, Sarah? Oh, very much. And I, I really resonated, Peter, with what you were saying. And I would say my struggle with intercessory prayer was a thing that kept me out of the church for about 10 years um, for the same kinds of reasons. And, and I think it's a, a very common experience that that people have of the 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 theodicy of of prayer you know i ask for one thing it may or may not happen so what's that about and if it does happen what about all those other things that are happening which don't appear to be on god's agenda what's Mm. that about and so the whole question of the justice of god rises very quickly to the surface I think in in intercessory prayer and and certainly for me yeah that was a and that struggle about about not wanting to fall into superstition not wanting to fall into falsity and you can feel the falseness often in certain (laughs) Christian contexts around this there's a kind of piousness and a like a, there's an ickiness that goes on and so that that kind of kept me out for a long time um, and I guess that was for me where discovering a practice of meditation or silent prayer was a real lifeline because it, mm. it meant I could let go of what I thought was happening or should happen or even any um, imaginative sense of what this could be about and just kind of sit there and trust that if there were there was any truth in this if there was any reality that that this was in relation to that 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 would become start to become apparent like the truth would start to show itself as opposed to me having to make up my mind in advance what was my theology of prayer or who did I even think God was so on on your journey I guess similar to this um struggling with that intercessory prayer did you spend some time in your faith journey where prayer wasn't a part of your life because you didn't know, I guess, what to do? Yeah, well, certainly praying out loud. I had a period of a number of years where I just refused to pray in a group because I'd, I'd been burnt so many times by someone who would pray and say they'd had a prophetic word for me and then I discovered they'd just been talking to someone who knew me and so their prophetic word was just a bit of gossip, really. Or um, praying against something I'd said. I would say something, a critique. Often it was because it was about the role of women in the church and someone would say, oh, we, I think we need to pray about that. And it was, it was essentially praying against asking God to intervene against mm. what I just said and so it, it the whole thing began to seem so toxic for for a while as well as all the the miraculous superstitious stuff 
that I just thought, I'm not doing this. So I just didn't didn't pray at all out loud. There'd be this deadly silence and, you know, we'd often go around in a circle and it was obviously my turn and I'd just sit there in silence. But that kind of sorted itself after a while. I think I just, just was able to let it go and start to realise that there was um, an awful lot of, uh, you know, people with real integrity who were sitting in those spaces and offering up themselves and just gradually it being around more and more people, I guess, who were just mm. sitting and being present um, encouraged me to get back there again. Uh, but that was that was a significant stage, yes. It's an interesting point you make because I think prayer can be sometimes passive-aggressive. It's a way of people saying, almost using God on their side, justify their argument, their position, I prayed about this and this is what I'm getting and you, how can you argue with that? That's right. <laughs> it's it a tough thing to argue with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that... Um, you know, that, that whole concept of prayer can be quite damaging. I know that, uh, I think it was at a Rob Bell event a few years ago, there was someone there who'd been, uh, worked in the oncology unit at a children's hospital and there were two Christian families, they said, right across from each other with children with cancer. And they both had their churches in praying and one kid survived and one passed away. And the family of the ch- child who passed away were in the hallway grieving after it had just happened while the other family was saying, God answered our prayers, this mm. is, this is mm. outstanding. And unsurprisingly, that other family and this nurse who witnessed this lost their faith as a result of that. Um, is, that the, uh, is that the wrong way to view prayer, do you think? I don't like using the word the wrong way, but is that the wrong way to view prayer is this as a request? I think this is a really um, delicate, complex question and one that I feel I'm still you know, grappling with and, and, and growing into myself. So earlier I was saying that this, what I saw as the problem of intercessory prayer kept me out of the church for a long time and mm. and in a sense it was this um, contemplative or silent prayer. But what's interesting is that the longer I've gone in, gone along uh, with that practice of, of, of meditation or silent prayer, I find myself being drawn back into the work of intercession and and seeing that now in a in a new way. And I think Sue touched on it. There's something about the 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 offering of the self that's a part of that, like the willing and, and I love the the etymology of the word intercession to to, to which can mean to stand between and also to be yielded, to, to seed oneself, to, to be handed over. And there's something about that that does strike me now as important, um, as not superstitious, uh, as part of the work of faith. But how exactly it works, there's certainly, it's not it's not a slot machine, obviously, um, um, it, but it, it connects into some, some depth dimension of reality, I think, some energy that, that um, yeah, so I feel I'm inarticulate about it, but I, I don't want to say now, oh, all petition is bad or intercession is bad. I think there's a much deeper thing going on there mm. um, but that often it does get you know uh, treated at way too simplistic or, or um, lollipop kind of level in the practice of faith we're speaking a lot about meditative prayer contemplative prayer which for some might be a new concept for some the only prayer they might know is the speak to God as if God is a person with you 
and ask for what is on your heart. That might be the only prayer some know. So it might be helpful as a, a bit of a definition. What is contemplative prayer and how does it differ? I mean, I, I guess contemplation, in, as I understand it, in the, in, the, in the first instance is this idea of, of waiting on waiting on God, the sense that we're contemplating that something is, bef- is prior there is this given reality that it, it's there before us and so we're not making anything happen we're not generating it we're not imagining it we we're becoming sufficiently still and silent that we can actually be present to it and and that in that silence um, that intentional silence and and availability that's how the, you know, that that brings us into this relational um, dynamic. So, so really, silence and 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 a kind of receptivity, but it's it's a non-grasping, non-forcing receptivity. It's a kind of presence to something that's being given. Mm. Uh, so I know that you run a Christian meditation group, which. Um, I guess is doing this weekly out of the cathedral. Can you run us through the practice of that? We we're affiliated with the World Community for Christian Meditation, as are so many groups around Australia. Our practice, um, we spend a bit of time being just present with one another, and uh, listen to a talk that's shared by the World Community, and then we spend twenty twenty five minutes just in silence. And that silence, we use a mantra. Uh, there's there's not one right way to meditate. There are many, many different forms and people use in, in many different ways. They're all effective and, and, and um, can be classed as contemplative prayer. Our method is we use the word Maranatha, an Aramaic word or combination of Aramaic words, um, which is partly helpful. I've found sometimes people, when they use a word, a mantra like peace, they might say peace over and over again, silent in their head, but then are sitting there thinking, am I being peaceful enough? Have I attained peace yet? And that actually gets in the way because meditation is the opposite. It's a downward journey. It's actually um, not something you can achieve. You know, it, it is a, a radical being present to God. And the mantra simply helps the monkey mind, which always you know, is our, our minds. You know, we are not our thoughts. I think we get stuck in our culture of thinking who we are is actually our thinking. And um, our mind just races all over the place. And it's, there's a freedom from that in meditation where you just return to the mantra and the power is just in the return. So you don't beat yourself up when you do get distracted. Mm. I remember one meditation recently where I think I got to about 18 minutes before I realised I'd still been playing over my whole day in my head. You know, and, and I'd sort of, the mantra was kind of a, lo, a low murmur in the background and I had to just stop and return to it. You know, but that doesn't come with condemnation. That doesn't come with, oh gee, I've been bad. That's just, oh, there's, there's some liberation every time in the return. So when you are sitting there in silence, you are just hearing this word in your head repeated. You're not, it's not like you're now doing the request prayer in your head. No. You just hear the word, mm. you know, and some people might say, well, what, what is that achieving? What does that do? I think the point is it doesn't achieve. You know, I think, I think so much in our culture is pushing to achieve all the time and meditation is just pure being. You know, you're, just, you're not achieving anything. And if you think you can tick off your box and say, oh, that's good, I've, I've achieved meditation now, then you're missing the point, I think. 
it is funny. I think a lot of people do get quite boastful about their prayer life. I got an hour in this morning or whatever it might be. I know even the um, the meditation app I have tells you how many consecutive days you've meditated now and it gives you like gold stars <laughs> if you get seven in a gold row. Gold star <laughs> meditator. <laughs> Which might defeat the purpose. But, um, it's like well, my Italian app. <laughs> I mean, well, it obviously doesn't achieve anything in itself. Um, I have found, and I'm sure we have all found that it does move you, transform you somewhat when you partake in the practice. How do you feel? And obviously not, not every time. It's not like a guarantee. You will feel peaceful once you've done this. But how does uh, contemplative prayer affect you? Once you've, you've done maybe 20 minutes of it, how, how do you often feel afterwards? How are you afterwards compared to beforehand? I think it, it does vary. And, and, and I guess I, I would tend to think in terms of um, thinking about how it affects not necessarily on a daily basis, like not not checking in after each time of meditation how I feel, but I guess what I was struck by when I first started to meditate seriously, and I you know I guess been meditating for six months or so, and I I just suddenly realised something had happened in the day, and I had I hadn't reacted how. I might have reacted in the past and even at the time I didn't realise I was reacting differently but it was a bit later I thought oh I think I would have got much more anxious about that before or or I found myself just being able to be light-hearted with that rather than really tied up with it and and you can't trace a direct causal line oh well that you know clearly my meditation is working but at the same time it felt connected to that and it was like I couldn't put it down to anything else you know so I think that the transformation it doesn't necessarily go through our conscious mind we're not kind of aware moment by moment ah I'm different I'm being changed I'm feeling different it's just one day you suddenly notice oh I am different and I don't even have to explain I can't explain that so it's it's a transformation really at the level of being and not just at a, at our conscious awareness. You can teach meditation to young children too. And my favourite bit of feedback I ever saw was, um, and again, you can't trace it directly, but because it was consistent with what I was observing with the children, you know, the, the, in the junior school, after, after months of practising meditation in the classroom and they were asked, you know, how they felt about it, what they liked about it, and this little girl said, I think it makes me kinder. Mm. And I thought, you know, mm. now you can put that down to that in that child's head, but I, it had been mm. consistent with the general behavioural change that we'd seen in the group and I just thought it was a lovely insight. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what John Main, who's the, uh, the founder of the World Community for Christian Meditation, he says, you know, the, um, how do you know that meditation is really prayer and, 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 and is, is effective? Well, you know because of your life it it shows up in your life um i mean i guess dom you asked a question about how do you feel after each meditation and i kind of took that in a slightly different direction but i i think it is you know sometimes you have days where you feel like you spent the entire time wrestling with your thoughts and you don't necessarily feel particularly calm afterwards but but often you do have a, a sense of being a little more spacious and and i certainly find that that on the days where I don't do it, I miss it during the day. Mm. I'm just uh, aware of a, of a sense of feeling just a little less collected, a little less 
grounded, attuned, those kinds of words. I think many people have the experience when they discover a contemplative prayer, especially if they've come from a, a Christian upbringing of, where was this all my life? This is this is actually, you know, because I think you, you, the, the old form of prayer that you might have grown up with, you might sit there and attempt to do it and feel you're not doing it very well and do it out of purely a sense of duty for 10 minutes and then fall asleep midway through it. And then you discover something that actually is moving something within you. However, I, I do also know that there are significant strands of the Christian tradition which demonize anything that sounds like meditation. I um, I worked at a very conservative Christian radio station where I got in trouble for using the word meditation on air once because that was from the other religions. Um, and that is a, an accusation that, you know, some people make. W- what is the the grounds of this? Because this this form of prayer is all through the Christian tradition as well, even though it's not known to be. Um, where, where, where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, I think people give different different responses to that question and it's it's certainly true that you don't find Jesus in the Gospels sitting down teaching meditation sutras in the way that the Buddha teaches meditation and I guess that's part of the question of, well, where's the authority for this? Um, and if you look at Jesus' prayer life, his, his going off in solitude, um, times of silence, the way he teaches prayer, go into your inner room, shut the door of your heart. Uh, you know, all of that sounds pretty uh, contemplative. Um, and as Peter was saying, he also clearly prayed the prayer of um, public worship and the the life of the synagogue so none of this is mutually exclusive Um, but I guess it's that sense uh, where it comes from in the in the tradition is I think this this call to be ever more deeply available to to God and and recognizing that that God is is beyond what we can ask or think Um, and and so uh, so it's it's a way, and John Main picked it up his particular method using a mantra from the reading of uh, John Cassian, who picked it up from the the desert tradition in the third century. Um, that they, they had a practice of repeating of a, a prayer phrase. Uh, Cassian calls it a formula. That's the word we translate as mantra. So this idea of there being a repetitive phrase which keeps you kind of keep coming back very humbly um, to to a, to the ground uh, has been there from the earliest of the traditions of the church. Mm. Why do you think there is in some areas a fear of going, I mean, obviously the perennial tradition would say, you know, if it's true, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, if, it, if it works, it works. Um, but there is still... A great fear that oh that's that's Eastern, which obviously you know I don't think any of us would have a problem with, but there are many who would that would say that is not of God, that is not taught, that is not biblical, that is not of God. Sue, what's your response? Have you ever dealt with people saying that about this form of prayer? Oh yeah, yeah, it it does come up a bit. Um, people are a bit fearful. You know, um, there's the, the question people think of, what is it opening you up to evil spirits when you sit there in, in the silence? I think um, p- 
primarily the first thing is, is we can stop being afraid. Mm. First of all, because God is bigger than that and we're so held in the love of God all the time that we can let go of our fear and just stop being afraid. Um, secondly, I think if we think um, we're getting closer to God by getting our words right, then God isn't big enough. You know, <laughs> um, If God is dependent on me getting my words right, then, then we have a problem. So I, you know, I think... Contemplative prayer comes in for me at that point of failure when I realise the failure of my own prayer life or my own capacity to express what, what's most important, you know, and so and even to know what's going on an awful lot of the time. So for, for me, that response that I would give to people is much more about um, we're resting in God. We're resting in, 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 in God's strength and not in our own in this form of prayer. I think that's so true is because so, many, so often the words tangle us up and I know that that was my example was I always felt like I was acting when I was praying with words. It was for like some sort of performance like, mm. all right, well, for this section, I'll pray for the third world because I'm meant to do that. And it wasn't transforming me at all. It was it was very fearful. It was this is what you're meant to do. Um, and it just wasn't at all fruitful. Mm. And I guess would that be w- what uh, the sign of a of of a good prayer life again i don't like the word good but a good prayer life that it is fruitful that it is it is moving you transforming you is that is that the fruit to look for yeah i i think so i i think it's that and again fruitful i guess can be heard in different ways people might think fruitful is efficacious as in i got what i thought i wanted um but yeah the way you're speaking of it done that kind of fruitfulness um well the the emergence of the fruit of the spirit in your life is a, is a sign of being connected to to the love of God you know the emergence of kindness or the growth in kindness and and patience and peaceableness and capacity for trust um, capacity to to be drawn more fully into the adventure of faith you know, all all of that i would say is is a is a kind of fruitfulness a sign that we we're connected to this reality which of its of its very nature is is healing us is is changing us is reconciling us um so yeah i mean sometimes in response to that question about evil spirits um entering if you open yourself up i kind of flippantly say look if if all that's between me and the evil spirit is my shopping list i feel like i'm in trouble you know <laughs> so the, the 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 idea that there's only my thoughts between me and <laughs> you know um and i would totally um concur with what what sue said that i think I think that the the essence of this kind of prayer is is that it's an enactment of poverty of spirit. It's that willingness to come naked and undefended before God. And I think a lot of our words of prayer, they're kind of a form of self-protection. Like I position myself before God, like you were saying, because I had the right words and I'm doing the right thing and here I am rightly positioned. And I, it seems to me like it takes us back to that place in Genesis where, you know, the first thing Adam and Eve do when they realize they become self-conscious is they want to hide. And God says, why are you hiding? And this prayer is, is, about, is about taking off the fig leaf. It's, it's about exposure. That's a great, great image. Yeah, that's really very powerful. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Um, I do think we, and you know, we did a recent episode speaking about the fast-paced nature of the world, and um, you know, as as technology has evolved, very 
it, it can be very difficult to, you can almost go a whole life without being confronted with silence. <laughs> you know, distraction of thoughts, of messages, of things to do, of conversations. Mm-hmm. It can fill up, I suppose, a whole life, which I, I guess is why, you know, we have the desert fathers and mothers who <laughs> decided to, to reject all of this. But, um, you know, I, I have friends uh, who are terrified of being alone in silence because they're there for 30 seconds and suddenly the monster <laughs> just hits them. It's mm. always there lurking. Mm. I guess would the encouragement be, no, you have to go through that. You have to, if you're scared of silence, that is a sign that something spiritually is <laughs> within you is is haunting you. I think that's a really powerful insight. I think um, our culture... Our culture is very noisy and it's distracting and um, sometimes um, we do get to terrors if we're still. Um, I think I think it's really um, important in this to note that different people will find that stillness in different ways. So um, just as just as um, intercession can be seen as a form of compulsory or, or the idea of sitting and saying your prayers is a is a is an imposed version of prayer. Uh, for some people, meditation, sitting in a group, is going to be uh, similar. They're going to find themselves driven to distraction by that process. Um, and and Sue's image of sitting around in a circle and praying, that, that is another form that will drive some people crazy. Um, some people need to go for a walk. Some people actually need their bodies to be involved in prayer. Um, one of the places I find I pray quite deeply is in the swimming pool which causes me to lose count of the number of laps I've done. <laughs> but for me, it's a very deeply prayerful experience, swimming. So there's a whole, my body is praying. Um, some people will find um, yoga helps them. Other people will find going for a walk. Other people will find having a time where they're doing some colouring in or something like that. Will I, I think it's, it's, it's actually taking the time to allow yourself to become grounded that is at the key to this. Mm. And it's a place where we can begin to truly find ourselves. I think Sarah's idea of naked before God is absolutely spot on. So what is, what is the practice? I guess the question for each listener is, what is the practice that helps me become naked? Mm. So how do I get the fig leaf off? And if... Whatever I'm doing is actually allowing me to keep the fig leaf on, then maybe that's not my practice. Um, there's a fair bit of work to suggest that um, you know, who we are is how we pray, so that it's really taught, caught up with our, our basic psychological structure. And we have to find for ourselves the thing that opens us up and allows us to enter into that form of relationship. So I think people should be encouraged to try stuff. So mm. meditate for a while, um, but if you really find that it's it's making you anxious, um, by all means explore that anxiety. So uh, that's why we also need a spiritual director to do this this path. Mm. I think mm. because if you're sitting there being anxious all the time, it may be that you need not to meditate. It also may be that you actually need to work out. So what is what are you encountering in that moment that is making you anxious? So you know, we can't say if it, if it makes you anxious, run away um, because we do that a lot. That's, that's our life. Mm. Um, but it's entering into this process of realizing that um, there's, a, there's a smorgasbord of stuff out there that is, is supposed to help us engage. 
and find out what is helping us engage in a way that is um, bearing the fruit. can I just ask to us to unpack the what it means to be naked before God a little bit because I think that is such a a powerful image um, and perhaps a lot of prayer that people have been taught or, or have encountered goes the other way it is performance in front of God again it is you know rocking up to God's front door you know in a full suit rather than <laughs> than any sort of stripping back um, but what does it mean to be naked before God Sarah Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked you. Yeah, yeah, I think, first of all, it, it means just being willing to, to begin to show up the whole of us. And at maybe early we're not even really fully aware what the whole of us is um you know w- we think we're our performance as well like we 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 we're um we think we know who we are and i think part of what can happen as we in in and i totally agree with peter that it's good to for people to find what what's what their way is, what what the call is that really helps them with this. But but as that begins to happen, you know, or even as you start to pay through that, start to pay a bit more attention to the way you're being in life, you start to notice the times when the performance falters or the mask slips and you become a bit more aware of, you know what, I'm I'm a bit angrier than I'd like to admit that I am or I'm a bit more anxious than I like to admit I am or I I, I feel kind of hopeless sometimes and for me part of what being naked before God means is being able to to own those things that I wish maybe I wish were otherwise I wish I, I were more together and <laughs> more spiritual and all of that and and bring all of that before God um, so it's that kind of um, I guess the word that goes with naked is also undefended mm. and 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 again I think that really connects with what Sue was saying about part of what all of this is is itself an enactment of the way Jesus taught us we could pray which is we can say Abba in other words we can we can who God is, we now, you know, trust, is towards us as tender, you know, to, towards us as a as as someone who wants our wholeness and 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 does love us. And so, I can actually risk bringing the whole of myself, including all the bits of myself that I I wish were otherwise or that feel totally untogether or untransformed. And, and and put that there, not because I know what to do with them or even that I'm actively praying, you know, save me from this part of my character or whatever, but just trusting that as it comes into that that space of encounter, um, something, you, you know, that's, that's, that's the prayer 
it's you know we sing all these kind of slightly saccharine hymns you know come as you are that's how i want you but you know yeah come as you are that's how i want you like in a way that's that's what it's about I think shame is the big thing that mm. stops us yeah. from being naked before God, and it, it is the real enemy. You know, there's so much when you look at um, movements like AA. You know, the reason mm. why that is so powerful mm. is because they are able to start off saying I'm an alcoholic. Mm. You know, um, and it start off with your stuff. And I think there's some power. And I know this is misquoted from Martin Luther here. But the sin boldly idea has something in it for me. I think so often we can have this built our pack of our house of cards that's based on, you know, are we doing everything right? Are we getting everything right? And, mm. and living very nice little lives. Um, but sometimes it takes a failure for mm. it to all fall down before then you have to depend on the grace of God. Um, but there can be so we can do so many other ways of, of avoiding um, facing facing who we are that it gets in the way of, of that transparency of that um, that radical encounter with the God of love and but and there it comes down to who do you think God is because if you think God is essentially punitive waiting mm. to catch you out and say what a bad human being you are which we most of the time already know our bad stuff. Um, I think John Philip Newell said recently, you know, if we think God's here to point out our failures, that's not good news. You know, it's not good. It's not even news. You know? um, so, you know, and, and I, I think if we and I uh, my recent encounter with this uh, example of this is when I was in prison um, speaking to a prisoner who was describing well, she was telling me how much she loved her daughter and how she'd got out of prison. She'd been a heavy hard drugs user for a long, long time. And she got out of prison and was reunited with her daughter and her daughter just wanted to hug her and love her and was so th thrilled to see her. But instead of staying with it, what she couldn't face, she said, I saw, she saw all her own failure of being a bad mum in her terms. And she said, I was so ashamed. And so she went back to the drugs that night because it numbed it. And if we can, instead of, of finding something else to numb it or something else to cover up, can actually trust enough in the radical love and grace of God, who is big enough for all of that, then we can come into that transparency before God. It requires such a deep honesty and vulnerability that virtually no other aspect of life in the 21st century will demand of us, unless maybe you're seeing a therapist. Um, no human relationship generally um, requires that level of vulnerability and honesty. So it, it is confronting. It is terrifying. And that was certainly my experience early on with you know, contemplative prayer was the moment I'm in silence, I have to start dealing with things that I didn't want to deal with that I've been putting out of my mind. And it, it became the one space where I felt more fully, truly myself than anywhere else in my life. But it is it it can be scary. And on top of being scary, it can also be because we are distracted and lazy and, you know, we, we've lost the art of the discipline of it mm. as well. And that's something I think it's, it's important to touch on is that, that this is a practice that if you actually want it to have an impact on how you are in this world, you do have to practice the discipline of it, even on the days where it doesn't seem to do anything. But that, that, have you found that difficult, Sarah? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and I, I think a couple of times we've touched on, uh, on the sense that, that – Part of why that's difficult is because it's actually painful, um, or or it can be, and and I think um, the the idea of that distractedness and avoidance is it is a kind of addiction actually, like like mm. and and so that that analogy with with um, 
addiction and that meditation and it, or silence or some kind of con- contemplation is a form of detox it's a detox kind yeah. of program and so that might mean you need to be gentle with yourself as you embark on it it doesn't mean you run away at the first sign of the struggle but it does mean you might need to recognize your capacity for this is going to be limited and just kind of gradually build on it I think um, and that I think yeah then is where the 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 sense the glimpse that even though this is painful even though this is hard even though I don't feel like it a lot of the time this is the truest way for me to be or this this is an access to truth once you get that glimpse that kind of helps you to to keep coming back to it um Mm. a bit like you know I guess an alcoholic has to you know keep coming back to the glimpse of this is this is how I want to be even though right now what I feel like is a drink so I think it it does require a a commitment which goes beyond what we feel like or what we feel that we're getting out of it um, on any given time and yet it's this paradox it also has to come with a capacity for self-forgiveness and and gentleness otherwise it just becomes another rod to beat ourselves with another uh, and that that itself becomes an unhelpful it becomes a, another another um, thing we're trying to get right in mm. life <laughs> I think in its truest expression you often do feel I mean that's where all the the language biblical language about nourishment comes Mm. in you you do feel it is the fuel that helps you be in this world in a different way and I know um, my temptation I'm sure many many others temptation is once you've discovered this you part of you desires the monastic life thinks oh well you know what I'll, I'll move to a monastery or I'll get a cabin in the woods and I'll just live like this permanently but there is a there is a real difficulty returning to the world after you've spent time there? How do you manage that? Should we all move to a monastery? Is that the answer? <laughs> uh, no, you've still got to be with people. <laughs> um, monasteries are quite fraught communities in many, in many ways. I, I guess what, I, what I'm struggling with is it's, it's not such a... I, I find it's not that hard to go back to the world um, after being apart. Um and that's partly because I don't see it in that sort of dualistic way. I mean, I see I see prayer as being part of my integrated life, and and there are times in the day when I might be prayerful because I've actually learnt prayerfulness. So that's mm-hmm. sort of it's a way it sort of invades the rest mm-hmm. of my living, and my living invades my prayer life, which is. Which is to pick up on um, one of the things Sarah, I think, really wisely said early is is through contemplation you rediscover intercession mm. in a, in a completely different way. So it stops being the shopping list and trying to control God, but because it sort of opens you up not only to yourself but to God and to other people, you really do pray for stuff. But not in that anxious way of I hope I get this right so that I can influence history, but but there's a sense in which one feels a deep connectedness to other people mm. that mm. W- makes you want to pray for them. Mm. Mm. Um, and so for me, there's um, I, I don't have that sort of sense. I, I love going on retreat, 
but every time I finish a retreat, I feel really quite um, happy to go home, even though I do struggle with the first few conversations I have because um, one of the things I notice when I come out of retreat is just how trivial so much of what we <laughs> talk about <laughs> is. And then I have to tell myself, well, that's actually because that's how we socialize and we keep connection. And you know, so that, that bit is a struggle, but not, not the being in the world bit's not a struggle. I, I find I'm, I'm actually refocused and energized mm. and I'm actually looking forward to doing my stuff. But, you know, those, you know, the, you know how's your day going sort of questions you know, often I find because I, I go quite a distance on retreat, and part of my coming out is to drive home. But you know, calling into the first milk bar and someone saying, "Sort of, how's your day going?" and you think, "Well, actually, I was going really well until I had to start <laughs> re-engaging at this level because I've been sort of contemplating, looking at the, the birds and the lilies of the fields, and, <laughs> and praying with a group of uh, Franciscan friars." Well, I, I think it, you, you touched on there that, that when you are in this, um, I guess, this zone, it is a heightened, deepened awareness um, and you, you start to see the beauty of all things and you, you kind of, I guess that's what they talk about, you know, having God's heart. You see with those eyes, you see, with, you have a glimpse of it mm. uh, at least mm. and it is only ever a glimpse, as you said, Sarah. Mm. Um, and it, it does then, it does it does give you perspective for a lot of other things. And it can make, you know, you stress about what colour we're going to paint the walls. or All of these things can seem so trivial, which again mm. just makes me want to move to a monastery. Um, <laughs> to be honest. They have to paint walls in monasteries yeah, 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 too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised what monastic communities could get obsessed about. <laughs> um, but but, but it, it, can, it, it can force you into, I mean, I know for me, one of my biggest challenges with my prayer life has been, it may it, there's so many things that mattered so much to me stopped mattering and then I didn't really know what to do with them anymore <laughs> and that that is quite challenging it can make you reassess a, a lot can't it yeah oh look I, I think your contemplative life I think it's really important that we do address that duality because I, I that dualism that is 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 false really because our contemplative life actually leads us into the world and is is, is the base but a lot of the the things that you come across in life just you see differently it's just opening your eyes in a different way and so things like intercessory prayer become more important, I think, rather than less important. So I still use words. I still have so many people I pray for. You know, I, I don't stick... My meditation practice is not the only prayer practice. I, I actually value the the person delivering the intercessions on you know on a Sunday worship morning because we're there all praying together. And that, that sense of holding together that community and our interconnectedness actually flows from that contemplative heart for mm. me and I think there's a sense that we're in the the universal web that sometimes I don't I have people that I I'm praying for and so when someone asks me to pray for them I, I tell them I definitely will and I make you know use technology make notes on my iPhone do that but what I actually do when it comes down to it is often just holding them because I, I don't know the complex nature of their life really they might have just shot off a request to me so a lot of the time I just hold them before God and trust to God for the rest and for that that mm. connection that holds us all together mm. and I, I guess I'd add too I again totally agree with what's been said about the kind of non-dual um, nature of this and the whole point of contemplation is to draw us into a non-dual <laughs> consciousness um, but but what you were saying, Don, too, about kind of recognising, look, some of the things I worry about, I, I realise I don't have to worry about it in the same way or I don't, you know. And again, part of what's a, a big emphasis in the tradition about um, 
contemplation and the gift of contemplation is that it's connected to the gift of detachment, uh, which which isn't to be confused with, you know, some kind of uh, um, indifference where I'm floating ten feet above the ground of all these other suckers out there who are still you know doing their thing but it but it is to do with a a certain kind of perspective um and a certain non-anxiousness and I think part of the gift of that and the necessary gift of that in again in our in our world that's where the true prophetic gift comes from I think I think there's a real connection between contemplation and prophecy not in the sense of you know I foresee the future but in that sense of being able to see more deeply into the truth of things and name it and not be afraid to name it Mm. and not get caught or caught up in the spin or the way we've been taught to frame something or the way somebody powerful wants us to think about it rather it's like seeing more deeply and being able to express that and I think that that sense in which contemplation gives us a, a, a different perspective, a, a deeper seeing, is also a really important um, feature of this prayer for the life of the church and also for the life of the world. I, I do just want to ask about, I guess, when it comes to praying for, for tragedies, people who might be ill, who are loved ones, or, or you know, we, we see a lot of political issues which might make us angry or heartbroken or whatever. And I think often prayer is some people feel it's i can do something with this you know we um it's been a big thing in america lately that people have have, you know parodied even the thing sometimes of we need to do more than just pray but that is a belief of some people that this is how i can change this or or try to change it do you still i'll ask you this one sue when when you pray for somebody who's ill are you still praying thinking that you might be able through prayer to bring about their healing or is, is it a different reason for praying? Well, it's certainly not me bringing about anything. I certainly do pray for healing, though. And um, I, I believe that the future is not entirely mapped out. I don't believe in, in, in a, a God that maps everything out to that detail. I believe in a God who sees us as co-creators with the spirit in the world. And I believe in a God who is always working for good, who will always do whatever God can to bring about healing and wholeness. Now, it is the whatever can sometimes, you know, and in sometimes I have more trouble explaining away in my theology when I do see a healing miracle. It actually throws me a bit. Um, but I, I sit there uh, and I, I certainly pray. I know that I believe we're more than just, you know, our bodies are not separate from our, our minds and our spirits, you know. Um, there's an interconnectedness there too. And so I pray for possibility. I pray for the healing power of God to work with that person and, and to be present with that person. It's not my responsibility, you know, it's God's. And I, you know, there are things that can open up sometimes between people that that can't always be explained. And and if the ill person does not recover, is that a failed prayer then? Absolutely not. No, there's healing is more than just physical healing too. There's, Mm. um, you know, um, we tend to see things in very slim terms, in narrow terms. And, um, you know, our lifespan is pretty short here. You know, we're all going to die. Suffering is part, Jesus never suggested that suffering wasn't part of our game here. And he certainly lived out a life where suffering was part of Jesus' life. 
and, and so, you know, it's not, I think we try and take too much on ourselves. You know, it's not down to us. God is far more merciful than that. You know, God's not going to give us um, overwhelming struggles and then say you didn't have enough faith to fix it. That's not the nature of God. I um, a, a spiritual director of mine once advocated because I mentioned that I, I was worried that my prayer life was so focused on me, my anxieties, my stresses, um, and I, I just it felt quite self-indulgent. And uh, he recommended that I write down 10 people who I know who might be suffering of some in some way and just spend a minute or two in my prayer dwelling in that. And ultimately, it awoke me, I think, to be an agent of God in actually bringing about change because now I'm thinking about them. I was compassionate for them and I'd reach out to them. So actually, in a roundabout way, the prayer did bring about change and help for them because it made me aware. And um, I, I, I was, you know, I think sometimes prayer can be quite a you fix this one, God. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll give you 20 seconds of my morning prayer for this sick person. You go do that rather than give me the patience to sit with them in the hospital. Do you think that's where prayer is about empowering us it's as well? It's always both and. It's yeah. like the Richard Raw calling his centre the centre for contempla- action and contemplation. You know, and he says of those, the most important was the end. <laughs> you know? I think he makes a good point. Um, just as a way to wrap up, Sarah, um, I do love what I've read about the Benedictus Con- uh, Contemplative Church in Canberra that you were the founder of. It. I'd love you to just speak about where that came from and, and what that community looks like. Mm. Well, I guess it came out of this um, practice of contemplative prayer and you touched, I think, early on about what we're talking about with this doesn't necessarily show up very obviously in a lot of our weekly worship services, this kind of prayer. And, um, you know, we, we can we can be quite word-focused or act focused in the weekly worship service not necessarily and certainly not always but I guess I had a kind of vision for what would it look like to have a weekly worshipping congregation or community that had at its heart this practice of contemplative prayer and so that the whole liturgy was in the service of drawing people into this silence and this space of encounter Um, and so that's really where it came from so that again we're not just using words to talk about encounter or to talk about transformation but we're trying to open the space where that actually happens in in the in the service I know all services are intending that, are intending to open that space of encounter. But I guess we we wanted to focus on this um, particular practice of encounter, which involves silence. Mm-hmm. So the whole liturgy is quite stripped back. There's many fewer words and um, there's a 15-minute period of silent meditation as part of every service. Um, and then the rest of the life of the community is also... Um, we're asking this question, what is a, the particular charism and gift of a contemplative community to the, to the church and to the world? So how would that affect how we, how we um, think about our governance? How would that think about um, how we work with children? How would that affect everything in our life comes out of this contemplative uh, charism? Mm. Do you mm. think the, that's a, a something... Movement feels the wrong word, but a a, a vein that others that, that could grow that that really could become a bigger thing. Uh, I I do think so because I think um, as Peter was saying earlier, we we live in a chronically noisy and distracted world, and 
part of what the spirit does is to move to heal the illnesses of a given age. And if that's the case, then this kind of growing interest in and recovery of contemplative practice is, I think, an, uh, um, you know, medicine, good medicine <laughs> for the ills of our age. And so um, I think people, I've certainly had a lot of people, every time I've spoken about Benedictus publicly, um, I've had people from all over Australia contact me to ask me, is there something like it near them? So there's definitely at least, a, you know, among some, a desire and a hunger for something like that. Yeah. Mm. And I suppose the encouragement from this podcast, as you were saying earlier, Peter, is just start trying things. Start sitting quietly. Start praying in a group if you want. Start swimming. Um, just try to, to encounter this. Try to strip back and try to be naked before God. Yeah. Well, that's uh, an outstanding conversation. Uh, I think I'm going to go and sit quietly for 20 minutes <laughs> after that. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Thank you, Sue Thank and you. Peter. Thank Thanks, Tom. Thank Excellent. you. And we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.